Before I start this week's Financial Crime Weekly Podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki of Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Welcome to episode 90 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast, which is the first of 2024. I'm Chris Kirkbride. A nice easy start to the year for this one. Too much unhealthy speculation, so I've ignored a lot of all that. We'll just stick to the facts. Presumably things will start to warm up with some proper stuff as we move further into 2024. As usual, I've linked the main stories in the podcast description. And we'll start this week with sanctions where there isn't much But it starts in the European Union, where the Council of the European Union has made two additions to its Russia sanctions. The first is the PJSC Alrosa, which is, quotes, the largest diamond mining company in the world. We've mentioned it before on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. It's owned by the Russian state and accounts for over 90% of all Russian diamond production. And its CEO has also been sanctioned, Pavel Alexeyevich Marinchev. Hope that's okay. Quotes, these designations complement the import ban of Russian diamonds included as part of the 12th package of economic and individual sanctions adopted on the 18th of December 2023 in view of Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. In the UK, early in the week, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, announced seven additions to the ISIL, Daesh and Al-Qaeda financial sanctions regime, and two entries to the DPRK, the North Korean financial sanctions regime. Then, later this week, it announced a further 14 additions to the ISIL, Daesh and Al-Qaeda financial sanctions regime, links to those notices as well as the consolidated list can be found in the podcast description. That's it for sanctions this week. Now, a bit of fraud, not much, but mainly drawn from the US, although I am going to comment on something that's happening in the UK at the moment. The fraud stories from the US start where, really, they left off in 2023, and, well, really, they were happening in 2022 as well. And it's news of sentences which have been handed down to more COVID fraudsters. First, one man has been sentenced to 10 years after conspiring with another, quotes, to defraud the US Department of Labor and the state of Arizona by fraudulently receiving and cashing COVID-19 unemployment insurance payments. The second is an individual from Chicago who, quotes, participated in a scheme to defraud the Small Business Administration's Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, the EIDL. The EIDL program was intended to provide loan assistance and grants to cover working capital and other operating expenses for legitimate businesses suffering the effects, the economic effects, of the COVID-19 pandemic. As part of the scheme, the perpetrator submitted numerous applications for loans on behalf of businesses that he and others purportedly owned. The applications contained false statements and misrepresentations concerning the purported entity's owners, employees, revenues, costs and dates of establishment. In support of his applications, the perpetrator provided 
false business registration forms, and bogus personal identifying information of the purported owners. Links to both stories can be found in the podcast description. I have to say, I do admire the US authorities for their pursuit of COVID fraudsters, and it looks like they're certainly not bored by it as we charge headlong into 2024. You can't really knock the DOJ for its tenacity. Well done them. The other thing I wanted to talk about, and I suppose in the fraud section of this podcast is as good a place as any to talk about it. I don't really want to talk about it briefly because this is a story which has been broadly covered in the mainstream media. And as a rule, I try and avoid, unless I can't, stories which tend to be high profile within the more mainstream media. Anyway, it's the post office scandal in the UK. And the scandal, for those of you who don't know much about it, although, frankly, if you're in the UK and you've not heard about it, you'd have to have been living under a stone. It involves or concerns the conviction by the post office principally of a number of sub-postmasters on the basis of evidence which was provided by a faulty software system called Horizon, which was provided by a technology company in the UK called Fujitsu, although it's an international corporation. Now, that Horizon software was supposed to run everything that the post office did at a counter. As I said, I wouldn't normally cover stuff like this because it's very mainstream. There's there's an awful lot of information out there on it. But I suppose I can't really ignore it in a financial crime podcast, even though it would seem that in the vast majority of cases there was no actual financial crime committed. And certainly it seems that there was no fraud. But I don't want to say too much because, frankly, so much has been written anyway about it. But I will make the odd comment First, I think it's worth praising the press coverage, particularly The Guardian and the FT. And their coverage has been exemplary, and it's certainly worth a read. Of course, you'll need a subscription to the FT if you can't get it through work. However, I think as well, special mention needs to go to Private Eye, which has covered the story for years. Certainly long before it became sexy over Christmas and New Year in the United Kingdom because of the dramatisation of it by ITV, one of the TV channels in the UK, in a programme called Mr Bates versus the Post Office. Now, I know some people find Private Eye irritating. I don't. I quite like it. I know people who find Ian Hislop a bit excitable at times. Ian Hislop is the editor of Private Eye. But that's largely because it is unafraid to speak truth to power, which is sometimes something that many of our so-called newspapers are unwilling to do because too many of them are client journalists. So well done to Private Eye for being a friend to the friendless when so many others were turning their backs. I think the second point I'd make is that this scandal raises deeper questions about the prosecutorial powers held by the post office, which brought the vast majority of prosecutions against sub Postmasters, a couple, a few were brought by the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service in the UK. Now, where prosecutorial powers are held by bodies other than those such as the Crown Prosecution Service, careful consideration needs to be given to oversight and accountability when powers, these powers, these powers of prosecution are being exercised. Certainly in some cases, it seems to have been wanting or almost entirely absent. Now, 
I have read some commentary. There's so much to read on this, but I've read some commentary this week and the week before and in the past, actually, about how the post office should probably lose its powers of prosecution, which, in light of the scale of this scandal, and it is or has been described variously as the biggest miscarriage of justice in the English legal system, I suspect that the removal of prosecution powers from the post office will certainly be on the policy agenda of the populist government that we have in the UK, especially as 2024 is an election year. Now that's all I really want to say on the matter. There's so much written out there in the mainstream media if you want to catch up on it, you can. Anybody who hasn't watched it yet, certainly it's worth watching Mr Bates and the Post Office. It's available on Catch Up, that I'm sure. Now, I don't really want to say any more about that. There may be more to come in the future, and I might cover it if I feel so... so if I feel as though I want to do so, but that's all I really want to say. Now, to money laundering. Money laundering news this week comes from the UK. First, an amendment to the Money Laundering, Terrorist Financing and Transfer of Funds Information on the Payer Regulations 2017. Now, these uh, amendments came into force on the 10th of January, respecting the treatment of domestic politically exposed persons, or PEPs. As the statement delivered by Baroness Vera of Norberton, the Treasury Minister, provided, quotes, the amendment makes clear that under the regulations, the starting point for banks and other regulated firms in their treatment of domestic PEPs or a family member or known close associate of a domestic PEP must be to treat them as inherently lower risk than non-domestic PEPs. Accordingly, regulated firms must apply a lower level of enhanced due diligence to domestic PEPs compared to non-domestic PEPs unless other risk factors are present. Links to the statement by the Baroness, together with the same statement given in the House of Commons by Bim Afalami, who is the Economic Secretary to the Treasury, can be found in the podcast description. Also, on the 10th of January, the Home Office published guidance on the money laundering reporting obligations in the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, which have been amended by the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act 2023, which came to force last year. This is a quotation from the guidance. A person can avoid committing these primary money laundering offences, those are sections 327, 328 and 329 under the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, and essentially they're the offences which go to the heart of what money laundering is. So a person can avoid committing these primary money laundering offences by first submitting an authorised disclosure, a defence against money laundering or DAML, SAR, that's a defence against money laundering, SAR, to the National Crime Agency, the NCA, and receiving consent or deemed consent to proceed. On the 5th of January 2023, the threshold amount specified in Section 339A of POCA increased from £250 to £1,000 for acts in operation of an account, such as mortgage payments maintained with a bank or similar firm. This does not apply to other actions, such as returning funds when terminating a relationship with a customer. The threshold amount is the value of criminal property below which a bank or similar firm, that is a deposit-taking body, electronic money or payment institution, can carry out a transaction without submitting 
uh, Defence Against Money Laundering, SAR, in operating an account for a customer without committing one of the main money laundering offences under POCA. The 2023 Act also introduced a further uh, further DAML exception to the primary money laundering offences to, this is a direct quote, exempt the whole of the AML, the anti-money laundering regulated sector, beyond those to whom the threshold exemption already applies to include those such as the legal sector, accountancy sector and casinos, when they end a relationship with a customer and pay away property with a value below £1,000 before transferring or handling or handing over the money or other property, the business must have complied with their existing customer due diligence duties under the Money Laundering Regulations 2017. Clarifying the handling of mixed assets, or to clarify as well, the handling of mixed assets, where only part of the assets are suspected to be criminal proceeds. These are mixed, of course. This exemption will enable businesses in the regulated sector to allow customers proportionate access to the non suspicious portion of their assets. Anyway, the link to that guidance is in the podcast description. Now, finally, on money laundering, we're back with our old friend, the Gambling Commission, which has been up to its old tricks as watching over the gambling sector. This time, it's fined GameSys Operations Limited for money laundering, and of course, where these fines often happen, they are usually accompanied with some kind of sanction for corporate social responsibility failings. Insofar as the money laundering failings are concerned, first, in certain circumstances, some customers were able to evade some of the licensees' AML triggers or thresholds and go on to spend significant sums without AML checks being conducted. One customer deposited £14,585 in a 28-week period. Another deposited £18,884 in just over six months, and another deposited £34,280 in five and a half months. Another was conducting inadequate customer due diligence and being over-reliant on third-party information, such as internet research, or the customer's verbal assurances that, that all was well. including one who deposited over £25,000 in three months, another who deposited £58,000 in six months, and another who deposited over £65,000 in six months. Finally, the Gambling Commission noted that they were having a reinvestment of winnings policy which was insufficient to mitigate the risk that deposited funds would be from illegitimate sources and not just from previous winnings. The sum of the fine was £6 million, and the links to the press release and to the notice can be found in the podcast description. Now, a little bit on bribery and corruption before we end this week's first Financial Crime Weekly podcast of 2024 by looking at cyber news. So that bribery and corruption news starts in the US, where SAP SE, which is a, quotes, publicly traded global software company based in Germany, will pay over $220 million to resolve investigations by the U.S. Department and the the U.S. Justice Department and the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, into violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the FCPA. According to court documents, SAP entered into a three-year 
Deferred Prosecution Agreement, a DPA, for conspiracy to violate the anti-bribery and books and records provisions of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act relating to its scheme to pay bribes to South African officials and conspiracy to violate the anti-bribery provision of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act for its scheme to pay bribes to Indonesian officials. As ever, I've linked that in the podcast description. The other story, which is worth mentioning, is surely linked to the continuing fallout from the DPA, which Entain PLC entered into in the UK. You may remember we discussed this on one of the Financial Crime Weekly podcasts towards the end of last year. The news is that the company is continuing its de-risking strategy. Now, the company has Entain PLC, which runs various bookmakers, was fined by or was agreed to a deferred prosecution agreement with the Crown Prosecution Service for activities which it undertook in Turkey, a company which it no longer owns. Well, what it's done since, I understand, 2020 is de-risk. In other words, it's moved out of markets that pose a risk to the business operations of Entame PLC, and that continues apace, even though we're now in 2024. It wants to focus on those jurisdictions where registrations are proper, where oversight is proper, and where there is, I suppose, a lower risk of it getting into the sort of legal difficulties it got into before 2024. Now, the cyber news. We end this week with our usual roundup. There's not much, but what there is again is interesting. We'll start with the fallout from the cyber attack on the British Library. Now, I've mentioned this several times. I reported it, well, a number of times over the last, towards the end of last year. It was attacked, I think, in October, and then the news eventually crept out. Anyway, the news concerns now the cost to the library and authors. It would seem that the library is having to use its reserves to meet the cost of the attack, which could end with a bill of around £7 million, at a time, frankly, when budgets are already tight in most jurisdictions. Further, the collateral damage is now being felt by authors who are experiencing delays in their public lending rights payments. PLR rights, public lending rights payments, are payable to authors whose works are borrowed from public libraries across the UK up to a maximum sum of £6,600. I mean, I'm sure it will happen at some point, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen imminently. For what it's worth, the thing I keep banging on about with the British Library, namely the thesis database, which is maintained by the British Library, remains offline. I checked at the end of last week. I checked, I think, on Saturday morning, and it was still offline. Now to Ukraine. We reported in the last Financial Crime Weekly podcast before Christmas that hackers linked to Moscow had been in the mobile operator Kyivstar for a number of months before the... um, before it was actually detected that there was anybody there. Well, in revenge for that, it's understood that Ukrainian-backed hackers have attacked a Moscow internet and TV service provider M9 Telecom. Data was deleted and customers were left without service for a while. Now, as I've reported on a number of occasions, while the conventional warfare gets all the coverage, there is increasing interest in the cyber warfare, with some consideration as to whether a cyber attack on a NATO member 
state would trigger the treaty's mutuality obligations. Well, I can this week direct you to another piece worth reading from the Lieber Institute West Point on issues around cyber warfare which have been raised by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Well worth a read, so I've linked it in the podcast description. Sticking with military, before the final couple of things, well, just final one final thing this week, documents from Swiss, the Swiss Air Force have been released to the dark web. This happened following a cyber attack on a US company, Ultra Intelligence and Communications, which provides tech to defence entities across the world. Final story this week is a mildly odd one. It's not really a cyber attack, but I thought when I saw it, this is worth a mention. It's worth an inclusion. Because it comes from the US Department of Justice, which has announced that eBay Inc., yes, the online auction site, has agreed to pay a $3 million criminal penalty for an August 2019 harassment and intimidation campaign targeting a Massachusetts couple in retaliation for their online coverage of eBay and for its obstruction of the investigation that followed. eBay was charged criminally with two counts of stalking through interstate travel, there's niche, and two counts of stalking through electronic communications services. They were also charged with one count of witness tampering and one count of obstruction of justice. It entered, therefore, into a deferred prosecution agreement. thought that was interesting. Don't often hear of stuff like that. But there you go. Link to the press release for that is in the podcast description. Right. Well, that's it for the first episode of 2020-2024 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and you'll hear from me again, all being well, next week with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>